So will we be faithful? Will we be faithful? That is the question that we endeavored to begin to answer when we began this series in Revelation. And if you remember back to the first message we talked about in Revelation, the, the Lord of the church gives a revelation, a vision to the Apostle John, who is on, who's exiled on the island of Patmos. And John in Revelation 1 tells us that he's exiled there because of his faith in Jesus Christ and his belief in the testimony of his Savior. He's exiled because of his faith. And the Lord of the church breaks into a, a prison of persecution and he speaks to the Apostle John. And he speaks and gives him a vision and he shares with him in chapter 1. He shows him who he is. He shows him a vision of him as a resurrected Christ with hair like white wool and eyes like flaming fire and a tongue like a double-edged sword and feet like burnished bronze. And he says, the Lord of the church in Revelation 1 says that I have the golden lampstands in my hand and I have the seven stars in my hand and the lampstands represent the seven churches and the, the stars represent the elders and the pastors of each of those churches. And he says, I am walking amongst my churches. I am in their midst and I'm coming to speak to them. And this is what we see that's unfolding. And we looked at the first church, the church at Ephesus and the letter that he wrote to the church at Ephesus. And, and I, I could summarize that the church of Ephesus, the message to them was to remember, to repent, and to return. To remember what it was like when they first fell in love with Christ. And they had fallen from that position of, of love for Christ, pure, un, uncompromised love for Christ. And they had fallen. And the Lord of the church says, if you do not remember and repent and return to where you were, I will remove your influence, I will remove the lampstand from among your midst. And this was the first church that the Lord spoke to. And really, the other churches, there's only two churches that the Lord did not rebuke. And the church we're going to look at today is the church, one of the churches he does not rebuke. And the issue with this church, the church at Smyrna, is that they were a suffering church. They were a church that was going through intense suffering in their life. And I know that suffering is our universal human experience. Suffering is what we all walk through. We go through it in different seasons. And I've heard it said that you are either, you're either suffering right now, you're coming out of suffering, or you're headed back into suffering. Suffering is our universal human experience. And why is it that we suffer? Why is it that we go through trials? Why is it that we, we suffer as we do? And the answer is, the, the simple answer, but I think the most true answer is that we suffer because of sin. We suffer because of what sin has done to humanity. Sin has brought brokenness into humanity. You guys heard the news yesterday or the day before, I think it was yesterday in Houston, that crowd of people at that concert that crushed people, 50,000 people crushing, moving towards the front of a stage to listen to a, a rapper rap. Eight people lost their life. Can you imagine what that was like? The pressure that was being felt as you, were, you had no control over what was going to happen to your life. You get crushed and trampled on. Human suffering is our experience. Suffering and tragedy. And Romans 8 tells us 
that creation itself is groaning. It gives us a perspective. The Apostle Paul in Romans 8 gives us a perspective about suffering. And it tells us in Romans 8, he tells us that creation itself is subjected to futility. What does that mean, that creation itself is subjected to futility? It means that the creation, the earth itself, the planet we live, we live on, it is decaying. It's decaying. Right? It's breaking down. It's breaking down. That's why we have hurricanes and tornadoes and, and earthquakes. That's why the earth, it's groaning. It's groaning. It's longing for redemption. But Romans 8 also says not only is the earth longing for redemption, groaning for redemption, it says that we ourselves are groaning inwardly, longing for redemption. Do you, do, do you feel that groaning and that longing in your heart? You know, there's times where, where things are good and life is good and, and there's no trouble and, and we've come out of a season of suffering and we can, we can take a deep breath and it feels like, oh, things are, things are good. But then we enter that season of suffering, that new journey that God is bringing us through and we begin to develop this deep longing. We look around, we see the pain and the suffering of our life and those around us and we have this deep longing and we say, God, we pray that all things would be made new. We pray that this is not the way that it would be. And this is the reality. And this letter to the church at Smyrna is one of the two letters where Christ has no rebuke. And, and this church, Smyrna, was the suffering church. The church going through intense persecution and trials. The church that was being crushed. So before we get to the text, I just want to give a little background to the church at Smyrna. Just so we can get some context before we jump into the text. So Smyrna, the word Smyrna for the city Smyrna means myrrh means myrrh. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. What did, the, what did the wise men bring Christ at his birth? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And I'm going to unpack a little bit later in this message the significance of the word myrrh here. But just to mention now, the word Smyrna means myrrh. And Smyrna was 35 to 40 miles away from Ephesus, the church that we just last studied. And the gospel would have no doubt reached Smyrna because of the Apostle Paul's gospel ministry. Look at what Acts 19 says. It says this, This continued for two years, speaking of Paul's journey throughout Asia, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So this Smyrna, Ephesus, these seven churches are, on, are, on, are in Asia Minor. And so because of Paul's ministry, his missionary journeys, it says that all of Asia heard the gospel. So Smyrna would have no doubt been impacted directly through the Apostle Paul's ministry and the gospel reaching them. Smyrna was said to be the most beautiful of all the cities in Asia Minor. It was a beautiful city. But it also, you remember, you remember Ephesus last week, we talked about their greatest uh, idol that they worshipped was Artemis, the princess, uh, the, the goddess Diana. And they had a huge temple that was built to, to honor her and to worship her. Well, Smyrna just didn't have one temple. They had multiple temples to multiple false gods. And, and here's, a few, here's a few notable ones that you may have heard of. Zeus, Apollo, and Aphrodite. So they, they worshipped many, many pagan idols in their society of, of that day. But the worship, there was a worship of one, one idol. There was one false god that they worshipped that was premier above all else. It was a worship of Caesar as Lord. Caesar as Lord. 
And this worship as Caesar, this worship of Caesar as Lord was the highest allegiance. And, and this is so important for us to understand when we study Smyrna. Is that any rejection of that allegiance to Caesar as Lord would come with great consequence. So what was it that, that Christians declared in, in their life? What, what, what is it that we declare about Jesus? That Jesus is? He's Lord. We don't worship Caesar. We don't worship the government. We, we don't worship those that are in authority in our government and that are ruling in our government. We worship one supreme ruler. He is the risen savior of the universe, and his name is Jesus. And the Christians then declared it, and Christians now declare it. And the consequences for declaring that Jesus was Lord and not Caesar would have been very great. And this is why this church at Smyrna was suffering. This is why they were suffering. So let's look at the letter, brief letter, to the church at Smyrna, this suffering church, because of their allegiance to Jesus as Lord. And let's see what the Lord speaks to us here today. Revelation 2, starting in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, so that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So what is it that we see in this letter to a suffering church? This letter to a church that's being crushed by tribulation, and being crushed by poverty, being crushed by slander. What do we see in this letter, this brief letter? What is the Lord saying? And I think it's so profound. And even in his introductory greeting in his letter, he has some powerful things to communicate to this suffering church. The first thing we see is this. The eternal one who conquered death is the one that is writing this letter. The eternal one who conquered death is the one writing this letter. Look at what it says in verse 8. The greeting of the Lord of the church at Smyrna. He says, and to the angel, to the elder of the church in Smyrna write... Here's the one writing, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. You ever needed to be encouraged before? You ever needed somebody to to lift you up with their words? How about words from the first, the one who was the first and the last? How about words from the one who died and came back to life? Amen? This is how. The Lord is greeting this suffering church. He wants them to know, hey, listen, it's not just anybody writing you a letter. It's not just Joe Blow down the street. It's not just your your neighbor who's concerned about you or your church member who's concerned about you. It's the great I am, the first and the last, the one who died but came back to life. The church who is walking through great pain and suffering receives a letter from the Lord the church and in his opening greeting he reminds them of something very important two things he reminds them of he says you need to remember this i am the first and the last we need to remember these things in our suffering and they needed to remember these things in their suffering he says i am the first and the last and secondly he says the one who died and came to life two most important realities that they must have understood they needed to understand 
and two most important realities that we need to understand when we are suffering. The first one is this, is that the one writing to you is the eternal God of the universe. What comfort would this reality bring to those who are suffering? It tells us that our God dwells outside of time and space. He's the first and he's the last. He's the Alpha Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. It tells us that our God dwells outside of our human experience in time and space. That he sits enthroned as Lord over all. What a great reality for us to understand. This church is being encouraged by this, but this encourages us here today in the middle of suffering, in the middle of pain and tragedy and loss, in the middle of a world gone mad for the last two years. The Lord is Lord over all. He is the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He is Lord over all. The one writing to you is the eternal God. John's revelation in chapter 22, the Lord says this, Behold, I am coming soon bringing my recompense with me to repay each one what he has done. What does the Lord of the church say about himself? I am the alpha and the omega, which means the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. John also writes, not only did he write this in Revelation, but he writes this in his epistle and in in his gospel. John writes, he says this to the opening letters of his gospel. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And the Word became flesh. And it also says that nothing that was made was made without Christ. That's what John says, not not only in Revelation 22, but in his gospel. The prophet Isaiah speaks this same reality to bring comfort to God's people Israel. Listen to Isaiah 44. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let them declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And are you my witnesses? Listen to what the Lord says. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. This is our God. The beginning and the end, the first and the last, the Alpha, the Omega, the God over all of the universe. He dwells outside of time and space. He is the creator. In the middle of suffering, we need to be reminded of that. And this church at Smyrna needed to be reminded of that reality that even in the middle of pain, our God has not removed himself from us. He is the one that is over us, in control of our reality. In the middle of suffering, this this is the reality they needed. This is the reality that we need to remember. Is there a God besides ours? Is there a, a rock besides him? No. The God we know, love, and serve is not a God made by human hands. But he is the God who made human hands. Do you, do you, do you hear that? 
The God we know, love, and serve is not a God that is made by human hands, but he is the God who made human hands. That means he is in charge. He is in control. And this is how he introduces himself to this suffering church. I love a a song that Andrew Ripp sang on Tuesday night. It's a song called Roses. It speaks to this reality of suffering and pain and God as creator. Suffering and pain and the reality of how God is over. All, listen to these beautiful words. It says, ever wonder what was on the mind of the maker when he turned all of our sorrow into fields of grace? Right here in the middle of earth and heaven, caught between the romance and the pain. Can't you see that? He must have known about the heartbreak long before us. He must have known about the mistakes and still he chose us. Listen, planted the tree. Where he would die. Planted the tree where he would die. Put thorns down the vine. Then he wore them. And love is the blood red stain. The beauty the pain exposes. Maybe that's why God made roses. Isn't that profound? He planted the tree that he would die on. He's the Lord over all creation. And this suffering church, they get this letter and God says, this is who I am. I am the first and I am the last. I plant the trees. I create the thorns. I am over all. The next next reality that brought comfort in this opening greeting was, what does the text say? The one who died and came back to life. The one writing to you is the one who conquered death. Amen? He's Lord over all. But he's the one who died but came back to life. He has power over death. He is the one with power over life and death. The devil has not power over life and death. God is the one who gives life and God is the one who takes away. He is the Lord that giveth and he is the Lord that taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That is our God. You believe that? You know what that does is, is it takes the sting out of death. What does 1 Corinthians 15 say? It says, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? Death, you have no victory. You have no sting because it has been stolen and taken from you. Because the, our Lord is victorious over death for the believer. For the believer, there is no sting in death. And for this suffering church, they can look at the suffering and the death of even their loved ones that have died in Christ. They can look at death and they can say, no, you do not reign. You are not victorious. You do not have the final say. I am the first and I am the last. The one who died and came back to life. The only one who defeated death. Man, what a greeting. What a greeting. What do we see in this letter to the suffering church of Smyrna? The first thing we've been looking at this morning is that the eternal one who conquered death is the one that is writing this letter. Next, what do we see here? Look, go back to the text. Revelation chapter 2, verses 9. This Lord of the church who's ruling and reigning. He's the first. He's the last. He's the one who's conquered death. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, 
and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. The second thing we see here, not only is the eternal God writing this letter to them, but he's telling them that the the tribulation, the poverty, and the slander are temporary. The tribulation, the poverty, and the slander are temporary. Notice he says this, I know your tribulation, your poverty, and your slander. These Christians were being crushed by tribulation, by poverty, and slander. You remember I told you earlier that Smyrna means myrrh? Myrrh was a precious oil. It was an essential oil of that day. And it was used. It was, a, it was an oil of death. It was one of the purposes of this oil. That they would use it to, 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 to bathe a body in it, wrap a body in this oil. Because there was not an embalming process that took place during those times. And so it was a very costly fragrance. smelled very strong, very costly perfume. But the way that myrrh is made, this is how it's made. The myrrh comes from resin that comes from a tree. And when that, when that resin would come out that, and a tree would be wounded and resin would bleed out from a, a wounded tree, that that resin, when it would harden, that that resin would be harvested. And then to produce the precious oil of myrrh, that resin would have to be crushed to squeeze out the precious oil of myrrh so that it could be used. And this is why it was so precious and costly. And this is a a picture of this church at Smyrna. They were being crushed. They were being squeezed under the pressure of what did he say here? I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. And I know the slander. I know your tribulation, your poverty, and your slander. The word tribulation, it means this. The word tribulation, it it means a crushing It means an intense trial. And this is what they were walking through. They were being persecuted for their faith, for their belief in Jesus Christ, because they did not hold to an allegiance to Caesar as Lord. They had one allegiance. It was to the Lord that beat death. It was a Lord. It was allegiance to the resurrected Savior. And then it says also that they were under poverty. The word poverty used here is the word that would describe abject poverty. Listen to what the Bible exposition commentary says about this church at Smyrna in their poverty. The members were persecuted probably because they refused to compromise and say, Caesar is Lord. Smyrna was an important center of the Roman imperial cult. And anyone refusing to acknowledge Caesar as Lord would certainly be excluded from the guilds. This would mean unemployment and poverty. The word used here for poverty means abject poverty, possessing absolutely nothing. Did you notice what he said there, this, this commentator said there? A trade guild would be like a trade union. And this is, way, this is the way in which the, the trades worked in this time. That if you were a part of a trade guild, a trade union, then you had work. But if, and those trade guilds were in submission to the government. And so if you did not worship Caesar as Lord, you were excluded from the trade guilds. And so you were excluded from an opportunity to provide for yourself or your family. And so this is what was happening. They were going under intense tribulation, intense crushing and pressure, but also they are dealing with poverty. Not only were these Christians being crushed under the weight of tribulation, but they were being crushed under the pressure of survival from day to day. Tribulation, poverty. And then he says slander. Slander. 
What kind of slander? He says it in the text, a slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. What does that mean? It means that there were Jews. These are Jews who have committed to Christ, right? He's writing to primarily Jews who would have committed to Christ. And their countrymen, their fellow people, looked at them. And they were Jews and they said, they said, you are evil. We don't believe in Christ. And they're being slandered by those who were their fellow blood Jews. And those fellow countrymen were looking at them and saying some things. They were slandering them. They were cursing them. What does it mean to, what, what, what is slander? It comes from the word blasphemy. It means this, abusive words that damage someone's reputation or malicious talk. Jews who rejected Jesus as Messiah would slander these believing Jews. Listen to some of the things that these, these Jews who would slander their own fellow Jews because of their belief in Christ. Listen to some of the things, and this is what history of the early church tells us. Listen to the type of slander. These believing Jews were accused of cannibalism because of the practice of communion. They were accused of immorality because of the common practice of the holy kiss greeting. Greet your brother with a holy kiss. They said, oh, these are a bunch of immoral Jews kissing on each other. Aren't you glad we don't do that anymore? I mean, we may kiss each other, but... Uh, do you guys remember a few weeks back, I had that, right after the storm, I had that, that brother from that church in Texas. He planted a big one on me, <laughs> right there on my cheek. And before I left, he gave me another one. I'm going, I'm going to visit him in January. Warren, Warren Beamer, I'll, I'll probably get kissed again. These immoral Christians, they practice holy kisses. They were accused of tearing families apart. What did Jesus say, Right? A, a, a father and a, and a, a, a mother would, would, would reject their kids, right, and, and because of the gospel, or they would, that, that there'd be a separation because of the gospel. And so these Jews would say, you see, you follow Christ, it tears families apart. Interesting accusation. Here's another slander against them. They were actually accused by their fellow Jews of atheism. And this is why. Because they were accused of worshiping a, a God that did not exist. You're just abandoning God. You're an atheist. And they're also obviously accused of political rebellion, slander, tribulation, poverty, slander. The church at Smyrna is being crushed by, by tribulation, poverty, and slander. And what does the Lord of the church say to encourage them as he describes this reality? He, he says, I know your tribulation, your poverty, your slander. I know it. I know it. Now, what does he say to encourage them? Behold. The devil's about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for that. You ever had somebody try to encourage you with their words? And you're like, after they leave, man, that didn't help at all. (laughs) You're nice to them, but you're thinking, oh, please don't try to come back and encourage me. It really didn't help. Look what the Lord says. He says, I know what you're going through, but behold... The devil's going to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested. Where's the encouragement come in? The next sentence. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. There's the encouragement right there. For 10 days, you will have tribulation. What does it mean, 10 days? it's, It's a picture. It's a symbol of the shortness of your tribulation. It, it could mean literally 10 days, but I don't believe that's the picture here. I think the picture here is that it is a picture of the shortness of the tribulation. He says, I know your tribulation. 
I know your poverty. I know your slander that you are walking through. People are saying things about you that are not true. And the devil's coming. And he's going to throw some of you into prison. You're going to be tested. But it's going to only be for 10 days. This is the encouragement. The tribulation, the poverty, and the slander are only temporary. They're only temporary. The church of Smyrna was no doubt like us when we suffer. We have moments when we feel like this trial will never end. Does it feel like that for you sometimes? It feels like this trial is never going to end. Is there light at the end of the tunnel? Is there hope on the other side of this? Can I, I, I can't see it. I can't feel it. I don't know that it's there. And the Lord of the church, no doubt, when he came and brought this to them, he's reminding them, yes, I know you're suffering, but it's not. It's not. It's only temporary. This is not the end. The church at Smyrna was being encouraged by the Lord of the church. He was saying to his people, yes, you're being crushed. And yes, Satan is about to ramp up his attacks. But this is not the end. This will only be temporary. So the question that I I, I would ask as I was studying this is, is temporary compared to what? Temporary compared to what? I believe the Apostle Paul, who had his fair share of tribulation, poverty, and slander, helps us to understand this. Listen to the Apostle Paul's tribulation, poverty, and slander, as he describes it in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says this, I've gone through far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Temporary compared to what? What's Paul's perspective concerning his tribulation, his poverty, and his slander. Here's the perspective. Here's what he says in 2 Corinthians 4. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And listen to what Paul says. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's it. That's the perspective. Can you imagine having that type of perspective? Walking through suffering? Yeah, I've gone through it. I've been crushed. I've walked through tribulation. I've walked through poverty and slander. But compared to the eternal weight of glory, there is no comparison. We don't lose heart. Because this outer self is wasting away. But our inner self is being renewed day by day. Wow. The afflictions we face are light, momentary, and are working for us. Scripture is profound, is it not? Listen to what the word of God says to us about our afflictions and our suffering. The afflictions we face, they're light compared to eternity. They're momentary compared to eternity, and they are working for us. Are some of you tired of your afflictions working for you? You're like, God, teach me another way. Yeah, teach me another way, Lord. I, I, I can learn through good times. 
I can learn through abundance. I can learn through blessing God. You remember back to Romans 8? You remember back to the subjection to futility because of the fall? This is our human experience. And God and his providence and his sovereignty and his loving care of us, he works all things together for the good of those who love him. So he works in our trials. They are working for us to do something in us, to prepare a weight of glory and anticipation for eternity. Here's what, here's what this type of suffering does. The afflictions we face are working to strip us of all of our unholy, earthbound affections. Wow. That's what they're doing. Do you feel that as you're walking through the, the, the troubles you're going through personally? Do you feel that as you're walking through the recovery process from Ida? These afflictions we are working, they're working in us. They're working to strip us of all of our unholy, earthbound affections. Where we make idols out of comfort. We make idols out of things. We make idols out of possessions. We make idols out of not being slandered. We make idols out of, out of, of, of the good life, of the peaceful life, of the blessed life. And the afflictions we walk through, they test all of those things and they strip us. And they strip us. Do they not strip us of all of our unholy, earth-bound loves and affections? And it is painful because God is working. What is he doing in all of that? He's working us to become more like Christ. Working to make us more like Christ. The earth tried to strip Christ. The Pharisees tried to strip Christ of all of his love for the Father and his love for the work of redemption that he was called to, but they could not get to him. They could not get to his heart. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's under the greatest amount of pressure and he's bleeding as it was, drops of blood, he says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup Pass from me, earth-bound affections. Father, I don't want the pain. I don't want the trial. I don't want the affliction. Father, if it's possible, let it pass from me. I don't want to have to go through this. But then he yields and he surrenders. And he says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Earth-bound affections stripped away and a submission to the will of his father for the plan of redemption. And when we walk through our trials with the same heart that Christ does, it strips away our idolatry. It strips away the things that are pulling us away from what God has called us to. And it sets our focus on heaven and away from our light momentary affliction. Wow, isn't it profound? The Lord of the church Reminding them of these realities. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are eternal. So what do we see as we look at this suffering church at Smyrna? We see that the eternal one who conquered death is the one writing this letter. And what a great comfort that is to to them. What a great comfort it is to us in the middle of suffering. And we see that the tribulation, the poverty, and the slander, they're, they're temporary and they're working. They're making an effect in conforming us into the image of the Son. And lastly here today, we see this, that the call is to not fear 
and to remain faithful. Remember the first question, will we be faithful? It's the question that we'll ask at the beginning of all of these letters and we'll ask at the end of all of these letters. Will we be faithful? And this is the call to not fear and to remain faithful. Look back to the text. The Lord of the church says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The point is this. The Lord is telling the suffering church, this church crushed under the weight of tribulation, poverty, and slander. He's telling them you do not have to fear the things that may happen to you while you're living in this temporary body. Why? Because in the end, we win. That's the point. In the end, we win. I will give you the crown of life. Do not fear. Be faithful unto death. Why? I will give you the crown of life. You are a victor even before the battle. Amen? You're a victor before the trial. You're a victor before the pain. Because Christ won the victory on the cross. And through faith in his name, we will receive the crown of life which suffering and pain and trials cannot take from us. I will give you the crown of life and you will not be hurt by the second death. What's the second death? It's not the first death. It's the second one. First death is what we're all promised. It is appointed once for man to die and then judgment. The second death that we as Christians escape is the death of eternal judgment because of rejection of Christ. That's the second death. So what does the Lord of the church tell this church? Don't fear. Be faithful unto death. I'm going to give you the crown of life and you will not be judged eternally like the rest of mankind who rejects me. You're a victor. You win. Jesus' words in Matthew 10 are especially relevant to what we're saying right here. Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You know, this is something we don't really talk about a lot in churches nowadays, is it? Fear the one the eternal one who's writing this letter, fear the one, the first and the last, the alpha and the omega, fear the one, the one with eyes like fire, hair like wool, feet like burnished bronze, fear the one, the eternal God and creator of the universe, fear the one who has the power to destroy your soul in hell. Don't fear the one who can kill your body and it can be crushed in a mad crush of bodies headed up to a stage in Houston, Texas. Don't fear that. Fear the one who has control over where you spend eternity. And that's what I would tell anyone here today who's living your life as if that God does not exist. That's what I would tell anyone here today who's living a life as if the greatest fear of death The greatest fear in your life is the fear of death in this earth. That is not your greatest fear. Jesus himself says that you should fear the one 
who has the power over life and death. Therefore, remain faithful. The greatest reality is not what man can do to this temporary body. The greatest reality is not what cancer can do to this physical body or what COVID can do to our physical body. The greatest reality is not the hurtful words that wound us deeply. The greatest reality is the eternal reality. And this is what the Lord of this church is saying. It's building. Hey, I'm, I dwell above the earth. I am the first and the last. And, 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 and I, I'm the one ruling and reigning over your tragedy and your pain and your suffering. I'm working it for your good and for my glory. It's working in you and for you. And don't fear. Be faithful. Because the greatest reality is the eternal reality. Do not fear what you are suffering or about to suffer. Therefore, the call is to remain faithful. What does it mean to remain faithful in the middle of suffering and trials? Because I can tell you it's difficult. And you know it. You know it in your life when you're going through suffering and trials. Is it not difficult? Is it it's difficult to remain faithful? It's difficult when you're working through pain and suffering. Your, your mind begins to race and you have thoughts that you can't control. You think all kind of crazy things when you're in the middle of trials and suffering. God, where are you? Will it work? Will I get through this? Will I be healed? Will I get another job? Will you take care of me? Oh, I'm going to give up. I'm going to quit. I'm going to throw in the towel. All these thoughts begin to race through our minds. And we're trying to be faithful. We're trying to be faithful in the middle of our suffering and our trials. But this is the beauty of the gospel. Being faithful in the middle of our trials is not a product of our own ability to persevere. But is rather the product of being fully reliant on his faithfulness. Because we are not faithful as we should. If it were up to us, we would not remain faithful. We would not remain faithful. The call, the Lord says, do do not fear and be faithful. We fail that test all the time, don't we? 2 Timothy 2 says this, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. The offspring of David is preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Because he cannot deny himself. That's powerful. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. How are you going to remain faithful in the midst of your trials and your persecution and your suffering and your doubts and your fears? You will remain faithful only because our God is faithful. Our God is faithful. We can remain faithful because he remains faithful. When we have no strength left, his strength sustains us. When we are weak, he is strong. When we are faithless, he remains faithful. What did the Lord of the suffering church at Smyrna say to encourage them? He says, hey, by the way, 
I'm writing you this letter, and I just want you to know I created everything you see. I'm the eternal God of the universe. I beat death. Don't forget, death has no more sting. He told them, hey, the tribulation, the poverty, and the slander you're walking through, it's only temporary. God's working all of those things to conform you to Christ and to develop an eternal weight of glory in your heart and a longing for heaven. And then he tells them the call is to fear not, to remain faithful because I am faithful. So this is what I want us to do today. I want us to end this morning singing of the faithfulness of our God. And this is a hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. It was written by Thomas Chisholm in 1923. So I don't know what it is that you've been walking through and the trial specifically that you've been, you've been walking through, but I know that this church at Smyrna needed to be reminded of the faithfulness of their God. And we need to be reminded of the faithfulness of our God. And we need to cling to him and to his faithfulness. So would you stand to your feet? And we're going to be led in this beautiful hymn.
pardon for sin and a peace that endureth thy own dear presence to cheer and to guide strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow blessings all mine with ten thousand beside great is thy faithfulness great is thy faithfulness morning by morning new mercies I see all I have needed thy hand hath provided great is thy faithfulness great is thy faithfulness great is thy faithfulness Lord unto me yes Lord you are so faithful to us and I pray God that that would be the lasting reminder of this service today that we remember that you are faithful when we are faithless and we we find it hard to have faith and trust and belief in you and your plans and your purposes that we would remember that when we are faithless you remain faithful you are with us no matter what we walk through no matter what the trial is and I pray that you would strengthen your people today and everything that they're facing, the loss of loved ones and sickness in their body and family struggles and difficulties and struggles with their house and the recovery process, all that we're dealing with in our community today. I pray that today we would leave remembering the greatness of our God and the faithfulness, the faithfulness that he brings into our lives. We, we love you and we thank you for what you're doing in our lives and in this church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I love you. I will see you next week.